thou eternal God. We could more easily count the stars in the sky than we could count the number of your mercies toward us. We are fully aware of our condition before you. We mourn our sin, our misdeeds, our transgressions, our offenses, our violations, our vileness. And we fly repenting to your outstretched arms. Have mercy on us gospel-abusing sinners. We claim Jesus, who doesn't make mountains out of our sin, but levels them. In the morning, when we rise, give us Jesus. In the daytime, while we work, give us Jesus. In the evening, while we sleep, give us Jesus. And in this exposition, as we study, give us Jesus. Help our growth not to be slow or spotty, but deep and lasting. This is our corporate plea. Amen. If you are new with us, we preach through entire books of the Bible. Verse by verse, week by week. We preach through books and not just the easy books. This is our 19th week going through the book of Revelation. Uh, this is the first Sunday for some of you. So let me spend 90 seconds and catch you up. John, a first century follower of Christ, lived in Asia Minor. This area was controlled by the Roman Empire. John was one of the pastors of the church in Ephesus until he was arrested for preaching the gospel. They exiled him to a little island called Patmos. It was a prison settlement. It's encircled in red on the map. While on the island, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to John in a vision. John had not seen Jesus for 60 years. This is 60 years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus commands John to write a letter to seven specific churches in the Roman Empire. They were all located in modern-day Turkey. To John's surprise, the first church was his home church, the church at Ephesus. The Roman Empire became very antagonistic and abusive to Christians, and this letter was written to them to instruct them on how to live in this very affluent but dangerous environment. John uses code words throughout the book, like Babylon. It was a code word for worldliness. Babylon was a symbol for all that opposed God. For the original readers, the modern manifestation of Babylon was Rome. You can't deny that because 30 years previous, another first century follower of Christ, Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter, wrote these words. She who is at Babylon sends her greeting. Peter is speaking about a friend of his in Rome who wants to say hello. So the original readers heard Babylon and they immediately thought of Rome. They picked up the imagery. They knew they lived in Babylon. Rome was Babylon institutionalized. But Babylon is not limited to Rome. Babylon is wherever sin looks attractive. John is instructing these first readers on how to live in a city where sin looks attractive. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation. 42 of them deal with Babylon. That's 10% of the book devoted to one subject, Babylon. It matters to God that his people view Babylon correctly live in Babylon perseveringly, and not get stained by Babylon's wickedness. Chapter 18 deals with the city of Babylon. Verse 10 says, You great city, you mighty city of Babylon. Last week, Babylon was a prostitute. This week, it's a city. Last week, she was a prostitute. This week, she is a city. Here's how we're going to go at the text. Three movements today. 
the funeral song for the city, the luxurious idolatry of the city, the necessary implications from the city. The funeral song for the city, the luxurious idolatry of the city, the necessary implications from the city. We will go through chapter 18 and hear the funeral song. Then we will go through chapter 18 again and pick up the verses we missed the first time through and we will see the luxurious idolatry before finally identifying the necessary implications. Kyle, what, what does this text have to do with me? Why should I be engaged this morning? I don't live in Babylon. <laughs> you don't live in Babylon? Well, we'll see about that. One of the many things I love about this church is that when you come to the text, you come to put in work. You roll up your sleeves and expect to get calluses on your hands and dirt under your fingernails. We are not here to play around. We are here to love God with our minds. You put in the work with the funeral song for the city. You put in the work with the luxurious idolatry of the city. And I will bring it all home for you and the necessary implications from the city. So let's begin with the funeral song for the city. It is not surprising for us to encounter songs here. There is more music in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible except Psalms. The, the songs of the Bible are not confined to the book of Psalms. We, by nature, want music in times of despair. We need music to deal with death. So we have three songs, three funeral songs. This whole chapter is a funeral dirge. We see the city of Babylon laid in a casket and a few people singing songs and then she's lowered into the ground. Someone with a shovel begins throwing dirt on her casket. People mourn as she slowly disappears under the dirt. By the way, she was murdered. Did I tell you that? We will find the murderer later in the text. Now, I should also point out that all these funeral songs are inappropriate. You don't want any of these sung at your funeral. Sarah and I had someone riding with us recently and we were listening to a song and that someone said, I want this song sung at my funeral. Well, no one wants these three songs at their funeral. I can tell you that. They are the worst funeral songs of all time. The only one that I could think would be worse would be Willie Nelson's Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die. <laughs> someone starts singing that at a funeral and I'm leaving. <laughs> what if someone sung an NSYNC song at your funeral? <laughs> bye, bye, bye. <laughs> I mean, we are saying goodbye, but that's a bit inappropriate. Or the old Wham song. What would you do if you were at a funeral and someone sang their song? Wake me up before you go, go. What? Before I became a Christian, I wanted an Eminem song at my funeral. Guess who's back? Back again. All of these songs in the text are just as inappropriate and out of place. Let's begin, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Let's take a step back here. This angel with mega authority, with immense glory, left heaven and came to a little island, Patmos, to speak with John. John hadn't showered, dirty face, stinky feet, eating bugs on an island. John, what a contrast. Such cleanness speaking to such filth. Such brightness speaking to such blandness. Verse 2. And he, the angel, called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. So this angel sings the first song. How does he sing? 
loud. He thunders, sings from his gut, not his throat. He says, Babylon has fallen, fallen. Now, beloved, is he talking about ancient Babylon? Literal, historical Babylon where Daniel was taken captive? No. That place died 600 years ago. This is not ancient Babylon in modern-day Iraq. Nor is this a future Babylon that the readers in these seven churches would never encounter. This is present-day Babylon. This is Rome, the Roman Empire. You say, well, Kyle, Rome isn't dead. She's not in a casket. It's still a thriving, bustling city. Well, that's true. When we read of her fall, it's already and not yet. It hasn't happened as a historical reality. She's not dead yet, but it's so sure, it's written in past tense. The city is as good as gone. It's all coming down. Nearly every line in all three songs is drawn from Old Testament accounts of the death of other ancient harlot cities. There's so many, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be unable to pull them all out. But let's think about John. John has missed so many funerals of loved ones while being imprisoned on the island. But he's allowed to attend this funeral from a distance. Babylon is no longer a metropolis full of human life, but a ghost town. A picture of absolute desolation. The smoldering ruins suitable now only for demons and foul spirits. Scavenger birds. Vultures circle the city ready to feast on decaying flesh. A city once filled with children playing in the streets now has tumbleweeds blowing through the streets. A haunt, that's all that remains of the city. Ruined, ruined is Babylon the Great. And the angel is happy about it. Throwing confetti, confetti at a funeral. He's singing with a smile on his face. Guess who's gone? Gone for good. Bye, bye, bye. Shouldn't somebody sing that's not happy Babylon is dead? Plus, the angel drags out all her dirty laundry in verse 3, listing different people she slept with. Now, that's a funeral you would not forget. Song number 1, Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Song number 2, Revelation 18, verses 9 through 19. The second song is sung by a trio. An angel sang the first funeral song. A trio of humans sing the second. And, and the first voice in the trio is the kings of the earth. Notice verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The, the political power brokers, kings of the earth, weep at her funeral. The word weep and the original language does not refer to a little whimper or a little sniffle. They are ripping their kingly robes, beating their chest, falling down and wailing. They stand far off and cry, doomed. Babylon was doomed in a single hour. And that's all it took to bring the city to a haunt. Quite a city to make all the kings of the earth cry. Everything they lived for gone. The kings of the earth make up the first part of the trio. The merchants of the earth make up the second part of the trio. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. The merchants from Arabia and Somalia who sent cargo ships out to the city they, from a distance, find out about the city. Babylon, the, the, the Roman Empire, was the world's largest consumer. The ancient Talmud said, ten measures of wealth came down into the world. Rome received nine. The rest of the world won. 
But here, the ultimate consumer is consumed. Now, what was on those cargo ships? Verse 12. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is, human souls. 28 different commodities. Rome had impressive commercial ties. Her trade network was next to none. Rome was filled with these textiles. The seven churches were familiar with all 28 commodities. Now, not everything in this list requires comment, but you can divide the list into groupings. Jewels, like earrings and gold necklaces. Clothing, like silk and purple. Decor, like ivory, which nearly drove the Syrian elephant into extinction. Decor, like beds made of imported cedar. Tools, made of bronze and iron. Food, like the finest domestic and imported wines. Osborne, one scholar, said Rome needed 80,000 tons of wheat to feed their people annually. Work animals, like cattle. Entertainment animals, horses with chariots. N not for war, but for racing, a favorite form of entertainment. And notice the last mention, slaves who are human souls. They are grouped with work animals because they were viewed as a means of, of production. Slaves were often referred to in the first century Rome as speaking tools. They were bound by the neck and led away just like cattle. John wants his readers in the churches to know that these are human souls. By using two expressions rather than one, he's pointing out that they are not just trafficking bodies, but trafficking souls. Now, this concludes the catalog of imports. Let's hear the merchants begin to sing in verse 14 and 16. Verse 14, they sing. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Babylon, uh, all that you thirsted for is now gone. All the silks, all the jewels, all the decor, all the entertainment, none of that will ever be found again. Triple negative in the Greek makes for really bad English, but a good translation. No, never, ever will these things be brought to you again. Verse 16, they continue singing. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels, and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. In other words, you were formerly decked with beauty, but now look at you. You're all pale and, and dead in a casket. The kings of the earth make up the first part of the trio. The merchants of the earth make up the second part of the trio. The deck hands of the sea make up the final part of the trio. I'm calling them deck hands. They are sailors, dock workers, mariners, the, the people who brought the cargo to Rome. So you've got kings, white collar, merchants sending the, the, the commodities, blue collar, Deck hands, no collar. All segments of society from all over the world mourn for this city. Babylon spent a lifetime building a beautiful city. And it's, in, and it's destroyed in the snap of a finger. Verse 17b. And all shipmasters and seafaring men and sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? Of all parties in the trio, this third had the smallest part in the song. What, what city was like this great city? There never was a city like her, 
They could see other cities falling, but not this one. When they arrive on their cargo ships carrying freight, they dock at a once beautiful city, now laid waste. Babylon lies smoldering in the ashes of destruction, and the deckhands catch the ash and rub it on their bodies. They are in mourning. Now, it's interesting. During the second song here, after each member of the trio sings, there is a unique addition in the text. The text mentions that each group sees the city burning, they stand far off, and they weep and wail. Same action repeated three times. They kept their distance for fear of getting burned. Now, why were these three groups so broken up about the destruction of the city of Babylon? They're not mourning because they love her. No, no. They're mourning for selfish reasons. The kings crawled into bed with her and knew that their destruction was tied to hers. They will face the same judgment. Their grief did not spring from love but fear. The merchants and deckhands, they grieve over their financial loss. Their consumer died. No one will buy their cargo anymore. Their commerce is cut off. The bottom just dropped out of their business. They don't love the city. They love what the city gave them. They grew rich from her. Babylon was their gravy train. They benefited from Babylon's ferocious consumer appetite, made millions selling to her. They don't lament her judgment. They lament their own economic demise. Now, granted, they're at a funeral and they're singing, but they're not singing Willie Nelson's song, Roll Me Up and Smoke Me When I Die, but they are singing, Now that she's dead... Our jobs have gone up in smoke. I guess it's back to beans and rice for us. Verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned. Verse 19. They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea, notice this phrase, grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Their mourning is driven by their own economic losses. They sing, oh, she's dead. How are we going to make the chariot payment now? How are we going to stay in the three-story house now? Song number one is Revelation 18, verses 1 through 3. Song number two is Revelation 18, verses 9 through 19. Song number three, Revelation 18, verses 20 through 24. Now, the first two songs were inappropriate. We saw that clearly but not quite to the level of the third. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Now we find out, church, in the next verse, an angel commands us to sing this song at her funeral. Oh, happy day when she died. This is a hallelujah chorus at a funeral. Is this a song we shouldn't be singing? Jonathan Edwards says this song is strictly reserved for heaven and no Christian before then. I like Jonathan Edwards, but I disagree with old Johnny Boy. The angel is commanding all heaven and all earth to sing a song of celebration. Celebration that Babylon is dead. Oh, heaven that's everyone in heaven. And saints, apostles, and prophets, that's everyone on earth. All God's people celestial, all God's people terrestrial. Is it right for us to celebrate the judgment of sinners? It strikes our postmodern ears as vindictive. How can the redeemed celebrate judgment on sinners? How can redeemed sinners celebrate judgment on sinners? The kings and merchants, I mean, they were at least lamenting. Maybe lamenting for the wrong reasons, but still lamenting. You're not even lamenting at death. You're rejoicing at death. And the word rejoice is a command and a continual one at that. Never stop celebrating that she is dead. Rejoice at burning, smoldering Babylon. This is our song. 
you will sing it at her funeral. Wrongs have been done to the saints, and they are now put right. Start singing. The angel continues in verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, and he threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The angel here gives an object lesson. He picks up a millstone that was used to grind grain. They were four to five feet in diameter, weighing thousands of pounds. They were usually turned by mules. The angel picks it up and says, this is Babylon. And he doesn't drop it, he hurls it. Dropping it would be an accident, hurling it is on purpose. He hurls it with violence into the sea and the thousand pound rock sinks to the bottom. She is gone forever. It's a double negative, never ever to be found again. It's speaking of the impossibility of Babylon rising from the sea of God's judgment. She's drowned, never ever to resurface again. Look at the city again, verse 22. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the meal will be heard in you no more. The city what was filled with astonishing gifted musicians, skilled craftsmen of every trade, the best and tastiest food. But all of that will be no more. This is a poetic description. The streets will never be filled with music again. Six times in three verses, we see the phrase, no more. Verse 23, and the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voices of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. What's happening? Darkness will drape the city. Music ceases. Work ceases. Domestic life ceases. Wedding bells will never ring again. In verse 22, we read her autopsy report. Verse 24, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. This is the autopsy of a deceased city. She's covered in blood, but not the blood of Christ. We've seen first the funeral song for the city, now the luxurious idolatry of the city. We're going to circle back around and pick up some verses that we skipped the first time through. But let's think about this. Babylon could not survive under the weight of her own sin. But what was her sin? Chapter 18 not only reveals to us that she died, but also reveals to us why she died, why the city fell. She was brought down because she worshipped luxury. She found satisfaction in luxury. She pursued a lavish lifestyle. She would do anything to obtain it. In fact, all throughout the chapter, we see evidence of this. The entire list of 28 commodities that entire list that we worked through, the 28 things brought over on the cargo ship were symbols of an extravagant lifestyle. The entire list is more theological than historical. The items suggest a certain way of life. The scented wood mentioned was harvested from citrus trees imported from North Africa. The wood was used to make dinner tables because the, the wood would not decay or stain. These tables were exorbitantly expensive and the Romans viewed them as essential. Lavish banquet tables, marble fixtures, they overindulged on the extravagant. They liked to flaunt their wealth. They were ostentatious, materialist. All those kings who went night after night to her brothel, what was she selling? Luxury. They weep because the idol they worshipped is now dead. Verse 3. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich. Notice this phrase. 
from the power of her luxurious living. We see here that she corrupted others. She unleashed on them the alluring power of a luxurious lifestyle. The nations drank it up. Oh, the silk? I must have it. Oh, the ivory? I'll take two tusks. Oh, the pearls? Five strings, please. She bewitched the nations. She, she poured in their cup the extravagant tastes of the rich. Verse 7. And she glorified herself and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of the torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, this is the first time we hear her talk, since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. She thinks she's queen over all. She thinks her demise will never come. Uh, I'll be no widow. I'll always have men on my sidewalks, clothing in my windows and chariots on my streets. She boasts before she's burned. She's demonstrating the delusion of affluent security. Verse 8. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. Now, you may have noticed two places in this chapter already, it's said that she will be destroyed in one hour. But here it says she will be destroyed in one day. So which is it? Will she be destroyed in one hour or will she be destroyed in one day? It's both. It's apocalyptic literature. Time is not the emphasis here. The point is how quickly her destruction comes. The suddenness with which it occurs. Now, to answer a question that I raised earlier, she, she was killed? The city was murdered? Who murdered her? Verse 8b. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. God put her to death. And this is not a wicked murder. It's divine judgment. How suddenly and spectacular the judgment of God came. But why did he judge her? Verse 5. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. The city of Babylon's sin rises higher than the tallest building in the world. Taller than the, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. Her sins stink to high heaven. She's fully accountable for her sins and the judgment is unescapable. God remembers her sins. He does not pass over them. Christians have a promise that God will remember their sins no more. She does not have that promise. His patience has reached its limit. Verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. Makes a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. Now, you may ask, is God overboard here on vengeance? He gives double what she did? I mean, is, isn't that a little excessive? Well, the Greek here is clearer than the English. The word double means twin or duplicate. Double her double. It, it's the thought of equal payment. Her punishment will be the twin of her actions. The funeral song for the city, the luxurious idolatry of the city, now the necessary implications from the city. You've done the hard work of, of studying the funeral song for the city and the hard work of the luxurious idolatry of the city. Now it's time to bring it all together, the necessary implications from the city. I have four implications for you. Implication number one. Are you living like Babylon will be destroyed? Are you living like Babylon will be destroyed? Church, that is the point of the chapter. The members of these seven local churches are to live like Babylon is going to be destroyed. The members of these seven local churches are to live like they are going to sing at her funeral. Apparently, the risen Jesus Christ recognizes the temptation that we face. The temptation to live like everything here is permanent. 
But this chapter shows us Babylon is not permanent. Now, let me pause here and say, some believe there will be a rebuilding and reviving of the ancient city of Babylon sometime in the future, and this passage is talking about that city's destruction. I do not believe that's the case. My position is the majority among active scholars today and the majority among active scholars throughout history. My view is the minority among YouTube videos. Now, there are a lot of good brothers and sisters in Christ who do not hold my position. I, I really do not want to continue to give this caveat each week. You're spiritually mature enough to recognize this. I don't believe that Babylon will be rebuilt in the future. I don't believe she is a future threat. I believe she's a present one. It's important to remember that John is not writing the literal destruction of, a, of the fall of a certain city. This is poetic and figurative language about the destruction of something bigger. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is a symbol of all that's wrong with the world. Babylon is the world, the spirit of the world, the world in opposition to God. In the Old Testament, Babylon was a city. In the New Testament, Babylon is a spirit. I don't see this as the destruction of one individual city. I see this as the destruction of a spirit that characterizes the whole world, every city. This spirit was in Rome. So it was talking about Rome, but it's not limited to Rome. The Babylons of this world will not remain unscathed. Isaiah in the Old Testament foretold the fall of literal Babylon. Now an angel here foretells the fall of spiritual Babylon. What God did to the first Babylon, he will do to the last Babylon. This chapter, pirates, copies, descriptions found in the Old Testament. Hurling a stone, the readers of these local churches would have been familiar with their Old Testament. They knew this was the same language used by Jeremiah to illustrate the original Babylon. How the original Babylon would sink and rise no more. Why the close similarity? Because it demonstrates that God's acts in the future are consistent with his actions in the past. These three songs that we walk through, they are prophetic taunt songs. Taunt songs. Babylons will come and go, but God will put them all in a casket. Implication number two. Recognize that you live in Babylon. Recognize that you live in Babylon. Babylon is mentioned 300 times in the Bible. But it, like the Exodus, became a paradigm to teach later truths. Babylon, in its truest sense, is in every country and every city. If you live in Clarksville, you live in Babylon. If you live in Hopkinsville or Oak Grove, you live in Babylon. We're foolish if we think we're not surrounded by Babylon. Everyone is. Babylon was a present reality for those original readers and it's a present reality for us modern readers. We must admit we live in Babylon. And Babylon has a way of making you love her. Chapter 18 is speaking. Chapter 18 is not speaking to Christians already in heaven. It's speaking to Christians living in Babylon. Implication number three. You need to obey Jesus and come out of Babylon. You need to obey Jesus and come out of Babylon. So where do you get that? Verse four. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, I believe verse 4 is Jesus Christ speaking because he calls the first readers and us my people. You need to come out of Babylon for two reasons. Reason number one, so you don't partake of her sins. Reason number two, so you don't share in her plagues. The purpose was not only to avoid her sins but to escape her judgment. This is not the first time God's called his people out. Think Sodom and Gomorrah. Come out of her. Jesus recognized that the seven churches were in Babylon and he wanted them to come out. 
So what does that mean? Does he want them to move out of the Roman Empire? Does he want you to move out of Fort Campbell? Out of Hopkinsville? Out of Clarksville? Oh, Oak Grove has a casino. I guess I need to move out. Jesus is not commanding these seven churches to move out of the Roman Empire. Come out of her does not mean geographically come out of her. It's not talking about moving away in any physical sense. Absolute physical removal from society would contradict the essence of Christianity. We are lights in dark places. Not physically come out of her, but spiritually come out of Babylon. And you come out by not partaking of her sins. You don't participate in her sins. Now that may mean persecution for you. Fine. God says to the churches, come on out. This is not a call to leave the world, but to leave worldliness. And we have not done a good job of teaching this as churches in the United States. There were a few churches out of the seven, like Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, that had failed to keep their distance from Babylon. They didn't come out of her. They looked like her. Did what she did, said what she said. They really, really, really wanted Babylon to like them. And for one of these churches, it was hard to tell where the church began and where Babylon ended. They looked exactly like one another. And for some of you, people-pleasing is your drug of choice. This is going to be a hard command for you. Jesus said the world will hate you. Babylon will hate you because it hated Jesus. They will censor you. Let me ask you this question. I don't want you to answer it out loud, but I want you to answer it in your heart. Are you more affirming of the world than confronting? Are you more affirming of the world than confronting? Jesus says, get out of there, church. Separate yourselves. It was the spurge who said, actually, we have a couple in our church who is uh, visiting his, his old church this Sunday. Um, I told them to take a knife with them and cut off a piece of wood on the pew and bring it back to me, put it in my office. And, and uh, the wife said, we're not going to break the law for you, pastor. And when he left, he said, I'll bring it back. <laughs> it was the Spurge who said, never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. End quote. Here's a summary of the entire chapter. Come out of Babylon! Come out of Babylon! Implication number four, don't be beguiled by Babylon's lavish lifestyle. Don't be beguiled by Babylon's lavish lifestyle. Now I want to circle back around to one of the first statements I made in this exposition. Babylon is wherever sin looks attractive. John is instructing the first readers on how to live in a city where sin looks attractive. See, the sin of Babylon was this. Do whatever it takes to live in luxury. Do whatever it takes to prosper. Church, are you guilty of the sin of Babylon? Do whatever it takes to live in luxury. Do whatever it takes to prosper. If it means you have to cheat on your taxes to prosper, you do it. Whatever the mighty dollar requires, you will do it. Whatever it takes to get ahead, you're willing even if it means ignoring the time God set apart for corporate worship and working through it. I can get three more hours. Even if it means neglecting to contribute to your local church so you can get a few extra square feet in your house or a few more trips to Starbucks. Throw someone under the bus at work to get ahead. And those of you that are employees, quite a few of you own businesses, 
you, you employers, you employers, wring every penny of work out of your employees because you are all about the bottom dollar. Church, you must be willing to identify any element of Babylonianness in your life. Here's what coming out of Babylon looks like. Meaning by money is gone. Meaning by money is gone. You don't get your worth from money. Here's what it looks like. Never making a future decision based solely on salary. It means you will never neglect time in order to advance. Never neglect time for the pursuit of luxury. Time. Time required for spiritual discipline. Time required for family worship. In the first century, these seven churches could not ride the road to prosperity unless they hooked up with Babylon. See, I, I've, I've told you this maybe many sermons ago, but the Roman Empire had trade guilds that required participation in false worship and wicked parties. Jesus is telling his churches, pay the price to remain faithful to me. The price is luxury. And this is why the end of chapter 18 is so rich. Remember when all the occupations shut down? They were no more. God says, you will not let my people worship me while working in the trade guilds? I'll shut the trade guilds down. Church, when you run after the American dream instead of God's kingdom, you're choosing luxury over faithfulness. Yeah, but, I mean, Kyle, the, a simple compromise would make life so much more bearable. See, see, Babylon is where commerce is everything and integrity is nothing. Commerce is everything and integrity is nothing. Jesus called this lust for luxury the danger of mammon. One-sixth of Jesus' sayings dealt with it. The issue is not the possession of wealth, but the pursuit of wealth. Because the pursuit turns you into a functional atheist. Why do I need Jesus when I have all of this? We are not beyond the reach of Babylon's tentacles. The older you get, the more materialistic you become. You must have air-conditioned seats. You must have unlimited internet. You must always drive a new vehicle. You must keep moving up in house size. You must wear silk and purple and the finest shoes and dresses. You must have that decor. You must go out to eat. You must not be deprived of the entertainment of horses and chariots. Why are you so aggressively pursuing these perceived needs is it possible you are trying to keep up with Babylon and are you disciplining discipling your children to do the very same thing why is it that you must go into debt and that you refuse to delay pleasure is she whispering is Babylon telling you that's the only way? That this ferocious consumer appetite is normal? We live in the richest society in human history. You do know that, right? We live in the richest society in human history, yet we give less percentage-wise than any group of Christians that have ever lived. The poorest Israelite in the Old Testament the poorest Israelite in the Old Testament gave 23%. Now, you've probably heard 10 and it's, you know, legalistic, push, and you give 10%. It wasn't 10, it was 23. Two tithes, and every third year, another tithe. But you could never do that. Why? Because Babylon said so. In chapter 17, last week, it was the tale of two women, the prostitute and the bride of Christ. In chapter 18, this week, it is the tale of two cities, Babylon and New Jerusalem. One is Satan's city, 
and the other is God's city. Which city are you living for? Which city is consuming more of your thoughts? Which city is the recipient of more of your money? Which city have you thought about more during this sermon? To which city do you belong? One will fall and the other will endure forever. Now those of you here that are non-Christians, I want to make sure you do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that if you live poor, that that's the way to salvation. If you avoid worldly luxuries, you are saved. That there was a, a filthy rich man who went up to Jesus and said, Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, Sell everything you have and you will have it. The man went away as he came, lost. He was not willing to sell all and follow Christ. Now, why did Jesus tell him that? Because that's not how you get saved. Sell everything and give it to the poor. You get saved by repenting of your sin and banking your eternity on the claims of Christ. But that man loved Babylon. And Jesus knew it. He refused to let go of Babylon. And Jesus knew if he was ever going to get saved, he had to let go of Babylon and take hold of Christ. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? That is my question to you, non-Christian friend. Money and luxury were his idol. He wanted them more than he wanted Jesus. What about you? What about you? Let's stand together. Father, it is not easy. It is not easy to turn away when Babylon calls us. It is not easy to put our hands over our ears when she begins to whisper. We are still sinners. And we still need your grace to say no to sin. And we are confident of this. There will be times we say yes to sin. But we know your word. And those who are faithful to confess their sins will be forgiven. So we hold on to your righteousness. Jesus, you did it. You literally lived in Babylon without sin. Something we have not done. And it's why we claim your righteousness and yours alone. Amen.